Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. So, what do you got for us this week, Kylie? This week, we are looking at the week of January 17th through the 23rd. Mm-hmm. So, imagine sitting in a theater. I'm thinking. The in- previews have finished and the house lights go out. It's dark and it's quiet. And then a familiar piano sound begins. Simple crash. And then the Golden Warner Brothers picture logo appears on the screen. Ah, yes. Now picture George Clooney. Okay. He enters the screen and sits in an empty chair. The room is plain and dark. And Clooney has on a prison jumpsuit. Is this Ocean's Eleven? What? Let me get there. (laughs) (laughs) He's greeted off camera. Oh, wow. He's greeted off camera by a female voice and states his name. Daniel Ocean. Uh Uh-huh. Wait, 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 wait. This isn't right. Sorry, I'm not telling you the plot of Ocean's Eleven. And honestly, I probably couldn't, even if I wanted to, because I don't actually think I've ever seen all of the movie. (laughs) The real story I'm going to tell you about has a lot of similarities to the movie, though. But this one takes place a little closer to our home in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. On January 17th, 1950, it's cold and somewhere in the mid-20s or so, and a little windy. Picture a large red industrial-type building. You mean all of Massachusetts? All of Boston, yes. (laughs) This is the setting for what would become known as the crime of the century. Or at least until the next crime of the century came along. Okay. If you haven't guessed it yet. I have not. <laughs> today I'm talking about the Great Brinks robbery, which was one oh, of the- Oh, yep. Yeah, that was yep. one of the largest robberies in the history of the United States and remained so until 1984. So on the evening of January 17th, 1950, five Brinks employees had what was possibly the worst day of their lives. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yep. <laughs> At 6.55 p.m., seven armed masked robbers somehow bypassed four locked doors to get to the second floor of the Brinks Armored Car Depot to confront the employees who were engaged in their nightly chore of checking and storing the money collected uh, from Brinks customers that day. The robbers wore clothing similar to that of a Brinks uniform with navy pea coats and chauffeur caps, along with rubber Halloween masks, gloves, and rubber-soled shoes. At gunpoint, the robbers forced the employees to lie face down on the floor and then tied their hands behind their backs and placed adhesive tape over their mouths. The robbers did very little talking and moved with a precision that made it pretty clear that they had been planning this for quite some time. Mm -hmm. The robbers began packing up the loot when a buzzer rang. The robbers removed the adhesive tape from the mouth of one of the employees and learned that the buzzer signified that someone wanted to enter the vault area and that it was probably likely the garage attendant. So two of the robbers moved towards the door and prepared to capture him, but he had apparently just given up and was walking away already, so they were like, that's fine. (laughs) Okay. Lucky guy right there. I know, right? (laughs) Completely oblivious to the robbery that was actively occurring inside. At 7.27 p.m., the robbers escaped the scene with one million. $218,211 in and 29 cents in cash. The 29 cents apparently is very important. And 
$1,557,183.83 in checks, money, money orders, and other securities for a grand whopping total of $2.775 million. Wow, that is a big amount. Yeah, that would be almost $30 million today. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> so one of the Brinks employees called the police and the investigation began. So as it turns out, the robbers left very little evidence behind because, you know, they were practiced at this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They had all been masked, so none of the employees could describe what they had looked like. They did leave behind the rope and tape they had used to bind the employees, as well as one of the chauffeur caps that they had been wearing. Oh, okay. There had also been four revolvers that the robbers had taken along with the loot that I, I guess had been like the employees, is my assumption. Yeah, probably someone was carrying. Yeah. So the police carefully recorded those descriptions and serial numbers in case the weapons were found or someone tried to sell them. Oh, you know what else it could be is you can store objects at banks oh, as well. Oh, yeah. So I that could definitely, like, that could have been part of the loot. <laughs> yeah, could have been. Prob probably it came off of other employees, uh, you know, bodies, but it did not come up. It, it, it could have come out of the vault. They, yeah. they have boxes and for I mean, it heirlooms is and stuff. like the Brinks armored car people. So like, I think they carry. I don't Maybe. know. I don't remember. But I, I feel like when you're lugging around that much money, you need some sort of protection. So uh -huh, I uh -huh. think they do have um, weapons of some type. Anyway. Learn, learn from that, one uh, future robbers. Don't take someone else's gun. They're easy to trace. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to it. So the police also made an effort to record any and all descriptive data about the missing cash and securities. Brinks customers were contacted for information regarding the packaging and shipping materials that they had used, as well as all identifying marks placed on currency and securities by the customer. Um, this was all recorded, and then appropriate stops were placed at banking institutions across the nation. So basically, if any of this came across their like their bank desk, they were to just be like, uh-oh, I need you to stay put. <laughs> yeah, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> yeah. So the police then proceeded to question all of the Brinks employees, perform checks on all past and present employees, and made inquiries about salesmen, messengers, and anyone else who had called at Brinks and might have information about its physical layout, as well as the way it operated. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the area surrounding the Brinks Armored Car Depot was heavily populated, and the police spent many hours interviewing people in that area of the North End to find anyone who may have had information about the robbery. They even began questioning local troublemakers and former criminals, and not just in Boston. Veteran criminals throughout the United States found that their activities during mid-January, the suspect of official inquiry. Oh. So they were like, this might not have been a local job. This could have come from anywhere, so we're just going to, like, round up anyone who has the sort of, like, past criminal activity and be like, what were you doing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so as I'm sure you can guess, the Brinks robbery became front page news with many calling it, quote, the crime of the century and the perfect crime. Brinks even offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the persons responsible. The case had captured the imagination of millions of Americans. And of course, people across the country started calling it with tips and theories about what had happened. Oh, yeah, because if you give a tip and then, you know, it, it leads to the capture, then you get money. So everyone, whenever, whenever they do that with the, you know, if you send in tips that lead to the capture, we'll, we'll give you money thing. Everyone likes to go, yeah. oh, I, I, I was kind of in the area, maybe. I sort and this of is no information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me money, please. <laughs> 
the the key part of that though is that like leads to the arrest and conviction. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. I think even if someone got arrested but didn't get convicted, you probably wouldn't get paid. Listen, psychics say broad things all the time and convince people that it was uh, a psychic power. So that's true. One of these days, I'm going to cover something that involved a psychic just for fun. Oh, man. (laughs) So one of these such tips from someone in California suggested that the loot might be concealed in the Atlantic Ocean near Boston. And my question is, just sitting in the water in some sort of like waterproof container or like maybe in a submarine? Your imagination is running more wild than some of these people's. <laughs> My next comment was, look, if you're going to give a tip, at least have it thought all the way through. <laughs> Yikes. I'm a little judgmental on these tips. Uh-huh. So some former inmates sent in tips about conversations that they claimed to have overheard while they were incarcerated. All of these leads were checked out, but unfortunately, none of them proved useful. On the night of January 17, 1952, exactly two years after the crime had occurred, the FBI's Boston office received an anonymous telephone call from an individual who claimed he was sending a letter identifying the Brinks robbers. So he claimed to know exactly who they were. Interesting. Yeah. Information received from this individual linked nine well-known hoodlums with the crime. After careful checking, the FBI eliminated eight of the suspects. Yeah. <laughs> Well-known hoodlum pulls off giant bank heist that's been gone for two years at this point, you said? Yep. Yeah. I I wouldn't attribute that to well-known hoodlums. Well, the ninth man had long been a principal suspect in the robbery, and he was actually one of the people who was later arrested because he was part of it. So he got one out of nine. Well, it led to an arrest. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And of course, few of the actual New England criminals wanted to be interviewed, obviously, but especially not by the FBI. However, every so often, if someone thought they were going to go to prison, they would claim to have a hot tip about the robbery. One Massachusetts racketeer, a man whose moral code mirrored his long years in the underworld. Like Hades? Um, criminal underworld. Okay. <laughs> not dead. <laughs> you just said underworld with so much right. conviction. <laughs> Uh, So this man confided to the agents who were interviewing him, quote, if I knew who pulled the job, I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd be too busy trying to figure a way to lay my hands on some of that loot, (laughs) which fair. Me too, my guy. (laughs) The police, to their credit, actually followed through on all of the leads that they got, including checking up on information concerning persons known to possess unusually large sums of money in the time period following the robbery. So talk about a really bad time to win the lottery. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They investigated racetracks and gambling establishments, hoping to find some of the stolen money in circulation there, but had no such luck. So all efforts to identify the robbers based on the evidence left behind, so the chauffeur's cap, the tape, and the rope, proved unsuccessful. But things started to look up when, on February 5th, 1950, a police officer in Somerville, Massachusetts, recovered one of the four revolvers which had been taken by the robbers. Well... Yeah, I could see that being the first thing uh, being found because mm-hmm. you would kind of want to ditch those as soon as you can. So. Right. So investigation established that this gun, together with another rusty revolver, had actually been found the day before by a group of boys who had been playing on the sandbar at the edge of the Mystic River in Somerville. So shortly after these two guns were found, one of them had been placed in a trash barrel and was taken to the, the dump while the officer found the other one and um, identified it as one of the weapons that had been taken during the robbery. 
A detailed search for additional weapons was made um, in the river, but they found none. Mm -hmm. So the other two are still just in the wind. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to throw all of them in the same (laughs) spot. (laughs) Look, they're Boston robbers. Like, you can't expect too much from them. (laughs) I mean, they, they pulled off the heist of the century. That is true. That is true. I expect a little bit more than dump everything that we had confiscated in the same location. Mm. Well, we're about to get to it. Okay. So the investigators found another potential lead from all the interviews that they conducted when several people who had been in the area reported a 1949 green Ford stake body truck with a canvas top that had been parked near the Prince Street door of Brinks at approximately the time of the robbery. Oh, The police theorized that with the size of the loot that the robbers were hoping to steal, it would make sense that they would need to use a truck to get it all out. And so they pursued the the lead thoroughly. And you said it was a canvas top truck? Yeah. Yeah. So it had like the cover over it. Yep. Yep. Suspicious. Mm. And it seems likely that the police were on the right track because on March 4th, 1950, pieces of an identical truck were found at a dump in Stoughton, Massachusetts. Uh, Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, an acetylene torch had been used to cut up the truck, and it appeared that a sledgehammer had been used to smash most of the, like, heavier parts, like the motor. Yep. The truck pieces were concealed in fiber bags when they were discovered, and had the ground not been frozen, the whoever disposed of it had probably would probably have tried to bury them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went through a lot of effort to cut up an entire truck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, if they had if they had properly buried it, they probably wouldn't have been. The police probably wouldn't have been able to find it. So yeah. Whoopsies. So the truck had been reported stolen by a Ford dealer near Fenway Park in Boston on November 3rd, 1949. And unfortunately, all efforts to identify the robbers through the stolen truck were unsuccessful because, you know, like it was stolen. (laughs) However, at least one of the robbers was now linked to Stoughton. So the police were able to expand the area of investigation and led to a couple of suspects. Okay, okay. So now you may be wondering, Kylie, none of these leads went anywhere. Did this case ever get solved or not? And I promise I'm about to get there. I wasn't. It sounded like things were progressing nicely, even oh. though over a long time. Okay, well, sorry, my bad. I made assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> so as frequently happens in cases like this, the police and FBI were slow, slowly able to narrow down the suspects. And a standout suspect from the start had been a man named Anthony Fats Pino a career criminal who had been a principal suspect in numerous major robberies and burglaries in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. Pino was known in the underworld as an excellent case man, and it was said that the casing job, like in preparation for the robbery at the Brinks property, had all of the signs of being Pino's work. Pino had been questioned as to his whereabouts on the evening of January 17th, 1950, and he provided a good alibi. Almost too good. Mm. Pino claimed he had been at his home in the Roxbury section of Boston until approximately 7 p.m. when he walked to the nearby liquor store of Joseph McGinnis. Subsequently, he engaged in a conversation with McGinnis and a Boston police officer, and the officer was able to verify talking to him at that time. The alibi was strong, but not conclusive. The police officer said he had been talking to McGinnis first, and then Pino joined the conversation later. The trip from the Brinks building to the liquor store could be made in about 15 minutes. So Pino could have been at McGinnis's liquor store shortly after 7.30 on January 17th and still have participated in the robbery. Ooh, Mm -hmm. we're going somewhere. So what about this McGinnis fellow then? 
Well, Joseph Big Joe McGinnis was another staple of the Boston underworld, having previously been convicted of robbery and narcotics violations. So sources in the Boston underworld described him as fully capable of planning and executing the Brinks robbery. He, too, had left his home shortly before 7 p.m. on the night of the robbery and met the Boston police officer soon thereafter. And locals in the know found it hard to believe McGinnis wouldn't have been involved in the robbery if the robbery had been done by locals. Right. However, neither McGinnis nor Pino were the types to jump into a scheme all willy-nilly and would likely have recruited more muscle and other criminals who were proficient in breaking and entering. So think of those two as more of the brains behind the operation. Now for the rest of the crew. Yeah, they're they're the mob bosses. The rest, <laughs> the rest of them. I, I guess I shouldn't say mob. Mob is very Italian, and yeah, that would probably, yeah, yeah. That's that's not I was a McGinnis. Say, McGinnis thing. is very yeah. a very Irish Scottish sounding name. <laughs> gang, do the gang. I mean, at some point, I think I refer to it as the robbery gang. At some point, so, yeah, 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 whatever. But they were they were definitely the heads. Yeah, they were in charge. So two of the prime suspects whose nerve and gun handling experience suited them for the Brinks robbery were Joseph Spex O'Keefe and Stanley Gus Gassiora. So he's Italian. <laughs> I think Pino is also Italian. Oh, so. well, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> Pino Grigio. <laughs> of course, I thought of wine. So both had served time and were well known in the East Coast underworld. Additionally, both had been known to have worked together with Pino before the Brinks robbery. So on the night in question, both O'Keefe and Gascoria had alibis, but not great ones. Both claimed to have been at bars drinking that night. Another tie into the robbery? Both O'Keefe and Gascoria's families lived in Stoughton, Massachusetts. Mm, so The one place we have of suspect. Hmm. Yeah, outside of Boston. <laughs> yeah. So, however, both O'Keefe and Gascoria found themselves in prison in Pennsylvania for some of their other crimes before anything could be pinned on them about the Brinks robbery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So while pursuing information in the Boston crime world, the FBI succeeded in identifying more probable members of the gang. There was Adolf Jazz Maffey, who had been questioned concerning his whereabouts the night of the robbery and was unable to provide any specific account of where he had been. So, like, no alibi. There was also Henry Baker, another veteran criminal who had spent a number of years of his adult life in prison. He had been released on parole from the Norfolk, Massachusetts prison colony, which, side note, I did not know it was called a prison colony. Yes. <laughs> um, but he had been released on August 22nd, 1949, five months before the robbery occurred. Baker had served two cons concurrent terms of four to ten years imposed in 1944 for, quote, breaking and entering and larceny and for, quote, possession of burglar tools. And who should be there to pick him up from prison upon his release? Pino. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Baker's alibi for the robbery? He claimed to have left his home around 7 p.m. after having dinner with his family to walk around the neighborhood for a couple of hours. Wait, that's the exact time that they needed him to say. I mean, there's a pattern. <laughs> uh, yep. Since he claimed to have met no one and to have stopped nowhere during his walk, he actually could have been doing literally anything between 7 and 9 p.m. on the night of the crime. Mm -hmm. So not even an alibi. <laughs> Another strong... Listen, I was just walking. I was walking here. No, Wait, no, that's... <laughs> yeah, Rob. <laughs> Whoopsies. Anyway, so another strong suspect was Pino's brother-in-law, Vincent James Costa who had been convicted of armed robbery in 1940 and served several months in the Massachusetts State Reformery, as well as the Norfolk Prison Colony. 
Costa claimed that after working at the motor terminal until approximately 5 p.m., he had gone home and had dinner, and then at about 7 p.m., he left to return to the terminal and worked until about 9. Now, as you've already pointed out, there is a pattern. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, the FBI also noticed that pattern. I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. I would do. So the FBI's analysis of the alibis offered by the suspects shows... Analysis. <laughs> they all left at seven and were unaccounted for. <laughs> analysis. <laughs> My God. Let me finish the sentence. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the FBI's analysis of the alibis offered by the suspect shows that the hour of 7 p.m. on January 17th was frequently mentioned. Oh, wow. <laughs> Golly gee. O'Keefe had left his hotel at approximately 7 p.m. Pino and Baker separately decided to go out at 7 p.m. Costa started back to the motor terminal at 7 p.m. Since the robbery had taken place between approximately 7.10 and 7.27, it was quite possible that the gang, especially one as well-practiced as the Brinks robbers obviously were, they could have arranged to rendezvous at a spe- specific time, and by fixing this time as close as possible to the minute at which the robbery began, the robbers would have alibis to cover their activities up to the final moments. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So while the FBI may have thought they had enough information to send the supposed robbers to jail, the federal grand jury did not. After holding trials from November 1952 through January of 1953, the grand jury released a report in which they disclosed that its members did not feel they possessed complete positive information as to the identity of the participants in the Brinks robbery because, one, the participants were effectively disguised, two, there was a lack of eyewitnesses to the crime itself, and three, certain witnesses refused to give testimony and the grand jury was unable to compel them to do so. Well, I mean, all they really have is that they all left at the same time. And they were all former criminals. Yeah, that's, with, like, that's similar... definitely not enough to convict. Right, like... right. Yeah, so like it makes sense. But the FBI kept on the case. After O'Keefe completed his sentence in Pennsylvania, he faced parole violation charges in Massachusetts, where he was frequently seen contacting other supposed members of the robbery gang. Later in 1954, another suspected member of the gang, Maffey, was convicted of federal income tax evasion and began serving a nine-month sentence in the federal penitentiary at Danbury, Connecticut. Unfortunately for O'Keefe, however, he was having some severe money issues with all of these, you know, bail payouts and whatnot, and he began soliciting the other members of the gang for his share of the payout. Wah, wah. <laughs> in May of 1954, O'Keefe and another local racketeer took Vincent Costa to a hotel room and held him for several thousand dollars ransom. Mm. <laughs> Allegedly, other members of the Brinks gang arranged for O'Keefe to be paid a small part of the ransom that he had demanded, and Costa was released two days later. Police questioned all those allegedly involved in this event, but they all claimed ignorance. Two weeks later, however, an attempt was made on O'Keefe's life. The Boston underworld rumbled with reports that an automobile had pulled alongside O'Keefe's car in Dorchester during the early morning hours of June 5th. Apparently suspicious of this, which, when you're a criminal, you probably should be. Uh Uh-uh. O'Keefe crouched low in the front seat of his car as the would-be assassin fired shots, which pierced the windshield and would have killed him had he not done that. Whoops. There was also a second shooting incident occurring on the morning of June 14th, when O'Keefe and his racketeering friend, who had helped kidnap Costa, paid a visit to another of the robbery gang, Baker. By this time, Baker was suffering some from some real bad nerves and allegedly pulled a gun on O'Keefe. 
Several shots were exchanged between the two men, but none of the bullets found their mark on either of them. Baker fled and the brief meeting adjourned. <laughs> uh-huh. So believe it or not, this wasn't O'Keefe's signal to get out of Dodge. <laughs> oh, really? No. It's like, woo, dodge those literal bullets. Literal Looks bullets. like I can go about my day. Yeah, no. On June 16th, 1954, a third attempt was made on O'Keefe's life. Well, I mean, it's more like a second actual attempt. The other one was more of like a panic shooting exchange, but ah. I digress. So this incident consisted of the firing of over 30 shots and resulted in O'Keefe being wounded in the wrist and chest, but managed to escape. Police who arrived to investigate found a large amount of blood, a man's shattered wristwatch, and a forty-five caliber pistol at the scene. Five bullets which had missed their mark were found in a building nearby. On June 17, 1954, the police arrested Elmer Trigger Burke. His nickname was Trigger. <laughs> well, I mean, I he mean... was the hitman. <laughs> they, they weren't exactly subtle. I bet Specs wore glasses. Just saying. I mean, yeah, you're probably right. I didn't look at their mugshots very closely, but you're probably right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so they arrested Trigger and charged him with possession of a machine gun. Subsequently, this machine gun was identified as having been used in the attempt on O'Keefe's life. So Burke, a professional killer, allegedly had been hired by Underworld Associates of O'Keefe's to assassinate him, a.k.a. Pino. Yep. O'Keefe was subsequently arrested for, again, violating probation by carrying a gun and was sent to the Hampton County Jail in Springfield. Now, how did this case finally get solved? Someone confessed. Oh. Mm-hmm. We got a rat. Can you guess who? Take a guess. The guy who keeps trying to get killed? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So on January 6, 1956, after several fruitless interviews by the FBI, O'Keefe finally asked them exactly what do you want to know. Evidently, he was fed up with being in prison with several other charges all looming over his he- head and hadn't even had a whiff of his share of the stolen loot while the rest of his gang seemingly got to enjoy their lives on the outside with nary a care in the world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So in a series of interviews, O'Keefe relayed the full story of the Brinks robbery. Apparently, the crew had originally been recruited to execute the robbery in 1947 when the Brinks facility was located on Federal Street in Boston, but the logistics had never worked out. After Brinks moved, the gang immediately began planning again. They cased the building from the rooftops of surrounding buildings and broke into the Brinks building several times to familiarize themselves with its layout. They also took the lock cylinders from five of the doors, including the one leading outside to Prince Street, took them to the proprietor of a local key shop who Pino had requested to like keep his shop open after normal closing hours specifically so they could come in, and had copies made. Inside the building, the gang members carefully studied all available information concerning Brink's schedules and shipments. The casing operation was so thorough that the criminals could determine the type of activity taking place in the Brink's offices by observing the lights inside the building, and they knew the number of personnel on duty at various hours of the day. Considerable thought was given to every detail. When the robbers decided that they needed a truck, it was resolved that one a new one must be stolen because a used truck might have distinguishing marks and possibly would not be in perfect running condition. They practiced the approaching getaway routes to perfection and even set up to do the actual robbery several times, but the conditions were never favorable. It wasn't until the night of January 17th when, on their approach, the gang noticed that the lights on Prince Street were out, leaving them the perfect opportunity. Ah, mm-hmm. there we go. 
Armed with O'Keefe's confession on January 11, 1956, the United States attorney in Boston authorized special agents of the FBI to file complaints charging the 11 total criminals with one conspiracy to commit theft of government property, robbery of government property and bank robbery by force and violence and by intimidation and two committing bank robbery on January 17, 1950 and committing an assault on Brinks employees during the taking of the money and three conspiracy to receive and conceal money in violation of the bank robbery and theft of government property statutes. It's quite a bit. Yep. In addition, McGinnis was named in two other complaints involving the receiving and concealing of the loot, since he wasn't actually at the building when it was being robbed. Six members of the gang, Baker, Costa, Geegan, Maffey, McGinnis, and Pino, were arrested by FBI agents on January 12, 1956. They were held in lieu of bail, which, for each of them, amounted to more than $100,000. Three of the remaining five gang members were previously accounted for. O'Keefe and Gascoria were in jail on other charges, and uh-huh. Banfeld had already died. Ah, okay. Yep. Uh, So two of the other conspirators, Flaherty and Richardson, fled to avoid apprehension and subsequently were placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. Wow. Yeah. What an honor. (laughs) I'm not sure that's how you should measure your, like, life goals, but hey. (laughs) So their success in evading arrest ended abruptly on May 16th, 1956, when FBI agents raided the apartment in which they were hiding in Dorchester. They didn't even leave Boston. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and they stayed in Dorchester. They stayed of all in places. Dorchester. <laughs> they didn't bother to leave the state. No, they stayed freaking put. <laughs> yep, and not far away. Yeah, so that's not the best planning on their thought. Honestly, I'm surprised they lasted that long. Yeah. So O'Keefe pleaded guilty on January 18th, and then Gascoria died on July 9th of unrelated causes. The trial began on August 6th, 1956. Eight of the gang's members received maximum sentences of life imprisonment. All were paroled by 1971 except McGinnis, who died in prison. O'Keefe received only four years and was released in 1960 because, you know, he had tattled on everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Only $58,000 of the $2.7 million was ever recovered. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. About 5000 was found on a small-time criminal in Baltimore when an arcade operator thought that a $10 bill was counterfeit and called the police. <laughs> what a way to get caught. Yep. This led police back to Boston and to an office on Tremont Street in Boston where the remaining 52000 was hidden in a wall partition. The bills that were recovered were in varying stages of decay, which is part of the reason that the arcade person thought that it might have been counterfeit because, like, it was in rough shape. Yeah. Um. But honestly, my guess is that probably a lot of that loot um, has since just, like, disintegrated. Because um, it was mentioned in one of the articles I read that they had, like, tried to age it quickly to make it look like it wasn't, you know, recently stolen. I was I was going to say, it bills last a long time. Yes, they do. But not when you actively try to destroy them. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, like, they put a lot, I think they put a lot of effort into, like, trying to make them look old and stuff. So that it wasn't like, here's a crisp bill yeah. in the town yeah. that just had millions robbed. Hmm. So that probably contributed to them, like, decaying faster than they normally would Well, have. also, they probably ruined some of the money oh, doing that. Oh, yeah, I'm that. sure they did. Yeah. So there, there was one source, though, that I read that said that the rest is fabled to be hidden in the hills north of Grand Rapids, Minnesota. So if anyone's listening out in Grand Rapids, you might be able to find some stolen Boston money. I was about to say, let's go treasure hunting, but Minnesota? 
Minnesota. Minnesota? <laughs> I mean, it could be a fun trip. Not right now. It's too, f- no, too cold. No, no. But maybe in the summer we could take a trip. No. <laughs> Road trip. Just kidding. <laughs> Someday, given, given how none of the rest of the story ever brought up Minnesota, I'm going to say that that's a bad tip. Yeah, that's probably one of those really <laughs> bad tips. <laughs> and imagine how long it would take to like case all of the mountains of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, just to try and find money. Like, you would die before you'd even get close. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. So the story of the Brinks robbery has made its way into several movies, including Six Bridges to Cross in 1955, Blueprint for Robbery in 1961, Brinks, The Great Robbery in 1976. A little on the nose on that one. Yep. And The Brinks Job in 1978. Yep, another on the nose. (laughs) Additionally, O'Keefe cooperated with the writer Bob Considine on the book The Men Who Robbed Brinks. Again, on the nose. (laughs) Well, I mean, that one's like a book. Yeah, that's true. It was published in 1961 as a as-told-to book about the robbery and its aftermath. And there was also a book titled The Story of the Great Brinks Robbery as Told by the FBI, which is you guessed it, from the FBI's perspective. Uh, yep. <laughs> and if you want to check out the scene of the crime and ever find yourself in the north end of Boston, head on over to the north end parking garage. It's still standing and it looks the same. Well, yeah, that's all of Boston. Yeah. Pretty sure I parked there once, too, when I visited the aquarium. But that is the building. Yeah. The same building that this occurred in. So that is the story of the Great Brinks robbery. Very cool. Fun, fun. Uh, I have to say, for a good portion of that, I was stifling laughter. And this is probably completely not in the wheelhouse of our listeners, but I was laughing the entire time thinking of little gangster Pino from Eden Zero. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Just cute little robot girl. Itty bitty tiny Itty bitty AI tiny robot. AI robot girl. And you're like, Fats Pino. And that I'm like, desper- oh, there's Gangster Pino. She desperately wants to be human. And then Fats Pino. Oh, man, I don't like it. You've ruined it for me, Jonathan. <laughs> I was stifling <laughs> laughter the whole beginning because every time you said Pino, just like an image of Gangster Pino popped <laughs> in my head. I mean, that could be some fun fan art. Anyways, on to our call to action. You can find our shows at halfwitpodcast.com, and we have things like merch and uh, places in our Ko-Fi is linked there. And uh, yeah, just go to halfwitpodcast.com. Find out what we're working on. There may be more stuff coming up. Probably not soon, but you know, when we have more shows, we're going <laughs> to put them there. Um, and uh, thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. <laughs> and uh, you can always reach out to us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. I think we've not said that a few times. Oh, but maybe. That's yeah. also on halfwitpodcast.com, how to contact us yeah. and all that stuff. So if so. you have any topic suggestions, comments, questions, um, fun facts that you think we should include, you know, send them our way and we would love to hear from you. Or just say hey. Or just say hi. That works too, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> on to fun facts. Fun facts. My fun fact is for January 18th of 1973, where John Cleese's final episode on Monty Python's Flying Circus on the BBC airs. Aww. And I love Monty Python. Yes, you do. All, yes, that, you do. all that kind of absurdist, incredibly dry, non-reactionary humor is <laughs> fantastic. I actually just sent Luis a TikTok the other day that was showing a bunch of scenes from not Monty Python, but kind of America's Monty Python uh, police squad. Oh, no. Uh, which was written by or, you know, produced and acted with uh, Leslie Nielsen. And I hadn't seen this one before, 
but there was <laughs> there was one scene where they made like a classic sitcom joke at the end and they freeze framed and as they freeze framed like all of the actors everyone's completely still and then slowly the entire police office just starts falling apart on top of them <laughs> and like the actors god bless them got completely destroyed by all of this falling debris Jeez. and were com- as still as still could be in like happy face poses reading something in the back sitting on a desk and they were oh just getting goodness. destroyed by the set i love that kind of humor <laughs> And like That's the, ridiculous. And like the credits were rolling over them as all of this was happening. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow, what a way to go. All right, so my fun fact is from January 21st, 1921. Famous literary character Hercule Perrault is introduced by British author Agatha Christie in her novel The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Kind of uh, funny is we have on our other podcast this month, if you're a Ko-Fi donor, is we have a game called Murder on the Eberron Express, which is absolutely inspired by a Perot book. So. Yes, yeah. So D&D style, but yeah. Yeah. That was fun. That was very fun. So that's, that, I like a good whodunit. Yeah, that one was led by Kylie. So <laughs> if, you, if you are a failed crits donor, you can go listen to that. Yes. All right. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you all for spending some time with us. Uh, as always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next week. Bye.